Um, we're in 1 Corinthians. My name's Rick. If you're new here, welcome to Grace Meadows. And we've been in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 for quite some time now. We've got a few more messages uh, to wrap this passage up. And I'm going to be talking about love not being provoked. But as a review, sort of, uh, I want to read to you starting in, in verse 1 of chapter 13. And we'll get down all the way to verse 6. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 6 says this, Though I speak with tongues of men... And of angels, but have not love, I become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy, does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Let's pray once more. Father, we thank you for your word, which is the truth. And we thank you that you speak to us every day through your truth. And God, I thank you for the message this morning. I just now ask that you would settle our hearts and open our ears And help us to understand and hear it. Not only that, but let it take root in us. Holy Spirit, as always, be here. Move me out of the way. Help me preach this message once more. Help it speak to your people. And help us to see the great love of God through this passage. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is an interesting one because in multiple translations it says a couple different things depending on what your Bible, which Bible you have. I'm going to read it in about four or five different translations and um, they should be back here behind me. It's the old KJV and, it, and it's talking about love but it says love doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked. Okay, that's a big difference, not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. New Living Translation, it said, it does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. So you got provoked. Now you have irritable. NIV says, it does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. Keeps no records of wrong. The ESV, it says, it does not insist its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. And CSV says, it is not irritable. The, the Greek word is paroxino, which means to... Have a sharp slap. It is to basically provoke someone else into action. When when Jesus is talking and he says, when somebody provokes you, when somebody slaps you across the face, what are we to do? Offer the other cheek. Turn the other cheek. And this is the picture that we're getting here is that there is a provocation. There is a provoking that happens that moves you into anger. Okay? Let me give you the uh, 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 Webster's definition. It says, to stimulate or give rise to a reaction or emotion, typically a strong or unwelcome one in someone. Let me put it this way. Have you ever heard the phrase, you're getting on my last nerve? In the South, we say, you're getting on my ever-loving last nerve, right? Have you ever said that this week, today, in the car on the way here? Yeah. Yeah. That's what it means. I've had it. I've had it up to here. You're getting on my last nerve. I've, you've provoked me. And the funny thing about provocation is that it usually takes place with and from the people that are the closest to us. 
Marriage. Let me talk about that for a minute. In my marriage, I've talked about this before, but I have a problem. I have a horrible, horrible problem. I lose my stuff all the time. Okay? My, my kids and my wife, as my Christmas present last year, bought me this. It's called the stuff shelf. And I'm supposed to put my stuff on the shelf. All right? My wallet goes back here. My phone goes right here. My watch goes right here. My ring. Everything, everything that I have goes on the stuff shelf. Right? And see, I have provoked my wife so many times over our 22-plus years of marriage into anger because I lose my stuff so many times. I can't ask my wife anymore where my stuff is. I can't. But you know what? My wife has this uncanny ability to know exactly where everything in the house is at a moment's notice. Hey, where's the thermometer with the red tip? It's in the top drawer on the left behind the little, the little shelf. How do you, we haven't used it in 10 years. How do you know this? She has a photographic memory for the things that are in my house. So she knows where my wallet's at. She knows. But I can't ask her. So I wander around like an idiot for 30 minutes acting like I'm not looking for my stuff. One day, I lost my wallet for so long I finally had to ask her. And she said, Rick, you know where it's at? On the stuff shelf. I wouldn't have looked there in a million years. (laughs) I've never used this thing. (laughs) Never. (laughs) My wife has never done anything wrong in our entire marriage. She's never promoted me once, and that's on the record. (laughs) Moving on. The other people that have a tendency to provoke us are our children. If you have kids, and depending on the stage of life that you have kids, they can easily provoke you. I want to tell you something. The greatest time, if you if you're, have, have a newborn baby, that's the greatest time of parenting in, your, in the entire scheme of things because you have absolute control over everything. Amen? The older they get, the less control you have and the more provocation comes to your life. Why aren't you home in time? Where have you been? What are you doing? Why are you driving fast? We now have these apps that we can track our son's movements and, and we can see how fast he's going. And no matter how many times we say slow down, he's back up to that speed. There's a provocation. You know what I'm saying? And so, and so as kids, depending on the stage of life that they have, they have a tendency to provoke us when they're in that terrible, that's what that we call them the terrible twos. And the tyrannical threes. And and then they ask the why questions. And you're in in McDonald's and they've asked 50,000 whys. And you're finally like, enough! Please don't ask me any more questions. You know, you get your kids and and you open the door and you're getting them out of the car. And you're like, why are your shoes off? (laughs) It's like an avalanche in one pebble. You're like, why are your shoes? You know we're getting out of the car. You know this. Oh, oh, no. You're seven. (laughs) There's a provocation that happens. (coughs) Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4 says this, Fathers, do not provoke. Same word, provoke. Provoke your children to wrath. But bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let me tell you something. There is a fine line between provocation and parenting. And you guys that are moving into middle school, age 13, 14, 15, 16, I want to give you a piece of advice. You are not their friend. You are their parent. And they need you to be their parent. Okay? 
They will not admit this, but kids have a tendency to like to check doors. They like to go around and check doors and see if they're locked, and they're locked. And, and when they're not unlocked, when, they're, when they are unlocked, guess what they do? They go through those doors. And so as parents, it is our job to put bar- barriers up and to put boundaries up in our house. And we are to, to set clear lines of discipline and say, look, we're not going to do that here. This is what goes on here. And you know what? They're going to disagree with you. They're going to push back a little bit. But that becomes a place of safety for them because they know the rules. And, and we cannot get to a place where we're so angry with our, our kids that we start provoking them to anger. We have to discipline them in love and raise them up, bring them up in the admonition and fear of the Lord. Amen? Now, when you have grandbabies, and I'm a recent grandfather. I know it's 29. It doesn't look like I'm not 29. I'm kidding. Um, but I have a 16-month-old granddaughter, and I call her the wrecking ball. Because that little girl can wreck an entire room in about 45 seconds. It is amazing. I mean, it's literally amazing the stuff that she can pull out and throw everywhere. And do you know what I say to her? Mariah! No, I don't. I'm like, Mariah. We'll clean up later, baby. You want some more candy? Okay. Do you know why? I'm not her parent. When mom comes home, I'm like, clean this up. Here's your kid. Bye! Really, truly, though, I think as parents and, and as you've gone through parenting, you realize that they're not going to be in the same stage forever, that there is a growth that happens. They're not going to be mess makers forever. They're not going to be, they're not going to be this age forever. They, they will grow, they will grow, they will grow, and they will go through all kinds of stages. I will tell you this, though. As they turn into teenagers, the natural course of our lives are a pulling away from each other. The Bible says they will leave mom and dad and cleave to their husband or wife. That's the natural course of events, and it's very hard. That separation is very hard, and there tends to be some anger because your teenagers want to do always. They will always want to do more than what you allow them to do. They're always pushing those boundaries. When you say the line is here, they're like this. I mean, here, here, what about here, Dad, you know? And you have to back that thing up, and you have to say, look, the line is here. You know this. You know where there's clear lines of delineation. And, and. And if you're not careful, you can get provoked into anger because your kids are always trying to push the boundaries a little bit, okay? So I want to talk about another thing. I want to talk about what provocation leads to because the the other translation that says, love is not easily angered. It's not easily angered. Now, I love the word easily because what it does is it says that sometimes love has to be angered. If somebody does something to my kids, I'm going to get angry about it. If there is unrighteousness or justice that needs to happen, sometimes righteous anger will come up at unrighteousness and injustice, right? But what the Bible is saying is that you cannot live there. You cannot stay in a place of anger. You have to let that go or it will actually have a physical effect on you. But look what it says in Galatians chapter 5 as part of the works of the flesh. It says... Galatians 5.19 says this, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, of anger. And if you are in a place where you are on a hair trigger and people can't say anything to you as far as correction or your boss comes in and says, Hey, you need to sit down. we got to talk about your job performance. And you lose it. That is... 
that is right up there with adultery, fornication, all of these other things. It is outburst of wrath. You, as a Christian, should have enough self-control that you're not losing it on everybody. Do you know those people? They're not mad at anything. They're mad at everything. They wake up mad. They go to lunch mad. They come home mad. They go to sleep mad. They just scowl all the time. You're like, what are you so mad about? Everything. No matter what people do for them, it's never enough. There's mad. Mad at the world. Mad that I was born. Blame my mom. You have those moms that like talk to you about your birth experience? It's 36 hours, son. 30, you came out sideways. <laughs> I've never been the same, you know. No, I'm kidding. It was funny, Beth, I think they put an epidural in and they were like, Beth, it's one o'clock, we need to start pushing now. And 10 minutes later, it's like, hey, there's my kid. <laughs> it was, it was, it, modern medicine's amazing. All right. Keep going. Selfish ambition, dissension, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelries of the like, which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It is a lifestyle of being angry. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, it's joy, it's peace. Now, we love those three. Give me some more love, joy, and peace. But it is the next three where we start having problems. I don't want long-suffering. I don't want patience. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and listen, self-control. We did a whole study on this about a year or two ago. And, 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 and the fruit of the Spirit starts with love and ends with self-control. And I'm thinking to myself, why does it start with self-control and end with love? Because love is the greatest. Well, these are the fruits of the Spirit. The Spirit of God is love. And it starts with Him. God doesn't need self-control. We need self-control, Right? Yes. Proverbs 25, 28. I'm going a little out of order, but this one, it says this. Like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. It means that people can come into your life and push you around and make you react any way they want to because you have no self-control. You fly off the handle at any time because you are easily provoked. And love is not easily provoked. Let me talk about... Um, well, let's stay on anger really quick. I got one more verse. Cease from anger. This is Proverbs 37, 8. It says, cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. Anger, wrath, and worry will cause bodily harm to you. If you are constantly angry about your situation in life and the people that are around you and doing things, you need to look at your life and say, why am I so angry with people? Why am I so mad? Is it me? Or is it really the situation I got? Because, because listen, if you're mad at everybody around you and, and they're not reciprocating that, there's a common denominator there. Okay, I'll keep preaching. Anyway, I read this this week. I heard this this week. It was really good. It, it said this. It doesn't matter how right you are or how right you think you are if you aren't embodying the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You can be right and be a jerk. You can have all the answers theologically and open your Bible, but if you are not embodying the fruit of the Spirit, it doesn't matter. You're not going to get your point across to anybody. It is grace and truth. Let's talk to the men really quickly. Proverbs 22, verse 24. Make no friendship with an angry man. Wow. And with a furious man, do not go, lest you learn his ways 
and set a snare for your soul. If you hang around with angry people, you become angry. If you hang around with people that are constantly bitter, constantly mad, constantly blaming everybody else, you begin to take on that disposition and it begins to override and it says it will set a snare for your soul. The other thing about angry people is this. I want, I want to talk to you about this. Women, if you are in an abusive relationship, you do not need to stay in that relationship. Okay? The prerequisite of a husband, a loving husband, is that he love his wife as Christ loved the church and Christ was never abusive to the church. And as a matter of fact, he laid his life down for the church. He gave everything for it. And so if, if your husband is misrepresenting Jesus Christ, you do not need to stay in that relationship because an abusive, a, 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 a physical and verbal abusive person, you do not need to be around. And if, and, if, and if you need help with that, talk to some men because we'd love to lay hands on them suddenly. Okay? If, if your husband claims to be a Christian and he is abusive, he needs to check his salvation because that is not embodying the gifts and fruits of the Holy Spirit. There should be something in him that says, I can't behave like this anymore. And, and husbands, men, if you are, seek help. Talk to someone. Find out the root of that anger. Cause, go to a counselor and figure it out because I'm telling you, you do not need to treat people in the abusive manner. With, a, with an angry man, do not go. <clears throat> Women, I'll talk to you for a second. Proverbs 21, 19. It is better to dwell in the wilderness. The wilderness. You don't have to say amen. You can wink just on the other. She's over here. Okay. Then with a contentious and angry woman. It's better to go to Walmart and buy a tent and a sleeping bag And sleep out. That's why y'all go hunting. (laughs) Hunting season lasts from like February to December 29th. (laughs) The other passage that cracks me up, it's better to dwell in the corner of an attic than in a mansion with with a contentious woman. A a woman that is always... And and, and that's the thing. It's like... Ladies, I hate to tell you this, but you are the temperature gaze of your home. You affect your mood and your emotions affect the whole house. They just do. And when you're bright and sunny, the house is bright and sunny. When you're when you walk in and it's and it's sunny in 68, everybody feels it, but it's also partly cloudy. <laughs> I'll keep preaching. Okay. This you know, James 1:19, my beloved brethren. But everyone must be quick to hear and slow to speak. We usually stop there. But there's a third part to this. You have to be slow to anger. You have to have self-control. You cannot be easily provoked. Because if you're easily provoked, it's just like the kids on the playground. They will, you will be provoked and, the provoked and the devil will push that button over and over and over. Because he knows this is an easy way to get you to fall. Like a, like a city that has no walls. You're just easily invaded. Self-control, you can't be easily provoked. You have to have love. And here's the thing with love. Okay, I know I talked about abuse, and I know I talked about anger. What I want you to understand is that there is an, a lifestyle of this, okay? There's a difference. When you're constantly in this state of anger, however, this is the beautiful thing about it. I asked my dad... Um, um, if there was a man 
or a person in the Bible that was, easy, that was provoked, that God put him in a position of being pr- provoked, and he had to come back and, 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 and deal with that over and over again. And he said, well, the thing that comes to my mind the quickest is Hosea. And I've never really preached Hosea. I've studied Hosea. I've read through it. I wrote a paper on it, but I've never really gone and looked at it in, uh, uh, for a sermon. And this is the amazing part of it. Um, God has a duality where, where he has to judge sin However, his heart is broken over, and, and he, has, he also is love. So he is, he is righteous, and he has to judge the sin, but he doesn't want to because he's fully loved. Does that make sense? Okay. You sure? Because I got two responses. Okay. All right. Hosea is a relatively younger prophet in the timeline of things. He's the, number fifth, he's the fifth prophet. So you have Elijah who called down fire on, on the prophets of Baal, and then he ends up killing 400 of them himself. He stabs them to death. And then you have Elisha, who called a bear out on youth and then mauled them because they called him bald. This is in your Bible. Look it up. Then you have Jonah, who went to Nineveh and got spit out by a fish, and he starts saying, repent, or in 40 days you're dead, and they repent, and he gets upset with God because God was merciful. Okay, And then you have Amos, who's going into the aristocracy and saying, you got to stop treating people so poorly. And he does this over and over again until they hate him too. So all of the men that have gone before Hosea have been righteous, angry, just men. We're going to call down fire on heaven. We're going to call out a bear. Get it together. Turn or burn. That was their message. Turn or burn. And, how, and God comes to Hosea, and Hosea means salvation. And he says, I need somebody different. I can't send an Elijah, and I can't send an Elisha or a Jonah because they won't understand my heart in this situation. So I'm going to have to send you salvation, but you've got to do something. What do I need to do? You have to marry a prostitute. God, I'm, I'm a prophet. I'm a pastor. I know. But I want you to marry this woman. Her name's Gomer. Go and find her, not Gomer, Paul. Gomer. And I want you to marry her. And so, if you look at the timeline of things, it's basically chapter one through three. And, and chapter one and two, they have a, most scholars believe they have their first son together. His name is Jezreel. It means to scatter or to sow. And then they have another kid. And most believe that it is not Hosea's child. And they name that child No Mercy. Or no pity. I don't have any pity on you. And then they have a third child. And they name that child not my kin or not my kid. So here's his two kids. No mercy. And that's not my kid. And Hosea prophesies for 40 years. And he prophesies to the northern tribes. And there's not one righteous king that he talks to. Nobody repents. Nobody comes back to God. They're all in idolatry, immorality, prostitution, wickedness. And they keep leaving God. And they keep committing adultery to God. And God is saying, I need a man who understands my pain and my heart. And at one point, Hosea's own kids come and say, hey, can you go and get mom? And he says, she's not, she's not my wife anymore. I can't take this anymore. The embarrassment, the shame, the ridicule that I've had to take. I'd go in and talk to a king and he's like, aren't you the prophet that married a prostitute? Everybody's had her. What are, you, what are you even here for? You're ridiculous, you hypocrite. And he's like, I haven't done anything wrong and yet I can't even give a message because of the position, God, you put me in. And do you know what God says to him? Go again. Hosea chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Then the Lord said to me, 
Go and love your wife again. Even though she commits adultery with another lover, this will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel even though the people have turned their to other gods and love to worship them. Verse 2, listen to this. So I bought her back with 15 pieces of silver and five bushels of barley and a measure of wine. In that day, 15 pieces of silver, let me put it this way. When Jesus was bought by Judas, they bought him for 30 pieces of silver. Okay? That was the lowest legal limit that you could actually buy another human being for. That was a slave's wage. That was what you bought a slave for. You, you legally could not buy another human being for less than 30 pieces of silver. So Judas took as little as he could for Jesus. And now Hosea walks in. And he says, I'm looking for Gomer. That old thing? Nobody wants her. She's totally used up. She has nothing. She has no clothes. She has no possessions. She's been in a corner. She hasn't taken a bath in months. Nobody will even touch the woman. And you want her? Give me 15 pieces. Give me half of a human being and a lunch. Can you imagine that? That's how little this woman was worth. Where were you when God found you, though? Where were you and what were you doing 